welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. So we're back with Surgeon Commander Ed Barnard for a second bit of this chat around traumatic cardiac arrest research. Now, in the first session, we looked at the reported survival and the difficulties with engaging with the data around survival from traumatic cardiac arrest. And we then had a chat about chest compressions and the HOT algorithm and fluid resuscitation within TCA. The next one is, I think, probably, if anything, more of a thorny topic. I want to pick your brains about adrenaline. Because this often comes up in terms of questions around resuscitation, we know its place, although less clearly after the paramedic 2 trial, in medical cardiac arrest. But how do you feel it fits into traumatic cardiac arrest? Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. So I think the first thing to say is there's not a lot of evidence out there about whether we should be giving adrenaline in states of traumatic cardiac arrest. And also, the evidence base in terms of using it for medical arrest is also a little bit shaky. I think most of you will be aware of the Paramedic 2 study that was published recently, which looked at the use of adrenaline or randomised patients to adrenaline or to placebo in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And that study actually included some patients in TCA, albeit the numbers are small, as you would expect from the differences in the incidence of TCA versus medical arrest. And those numbers in the study were too small for us to be able to make any inference to whether we should be giving adrenaline in traumatic cardiac arrest. I think it's important to look back again at where this has all come from. And we know that adrenaline was first put forward after some animal studies and asphyxiated dogs in the 1960s, which seemed to show that adrenaline improved survival following that asphyxiation cardiac arrest in some dogs. And then it was very quickly used in a human setting, as we know, and is very much part of our advanced life support algorithms. When we think about what adrenaline is doing, I think the main aim of it is alpha-2 receptor um, action on vascular smooth muscle, which causes vasoconstriction. And essentially what that is doing, or it's hoped it's doing, is increasing the aortic diastolic pressure, which hopefully leads to an increase in coronary perfusion pressures and therefore improving short-term survival. But there's also some suggested side effects of adrenaline and that it looks like it probably impairs the cerebral microvascular blood flow and therefore is likely to be associated with worse neurological outcomes. And we saw that within the Paramedic 2 study, albeit the majority of those were medical cardiac arrest, in that we saw an improvement or an increase in the rates of return of spontaneous circulation, but we didn't see any difference in the rates of good neurological outcome of those patients. So I think it's fair to say that in medical cardiac arrest, what we see is that adrenaline is useful to improve the survival to hospital admission, but doesn't seem to have any effect on the favourable neurological outcome survival to hospital discharge. And if we're thinking about its use in traumatic cardiac arrest, albeit there's not a lot of data, there's some observational data that seems to show that there is a worse outcome associated with the use of adrenaline in traumatic cardiac arrest. But the data is pretty shaky. So I think it really comes down to what we consider might be the underlying etiology of our arrest, which we've already discussed in the previous episode, is really complex and we probably can't do, certainly within the first few minutes of attending a patient pre-hospital. 
So the jury's really out, which is a bit of a flaky answer to your question, Dave. And so I think for the moment, the best thing to do is to follow the Resource Council and the ERC guidelines for the management of traumatic cardiac arrest and cardiac arrest in general, which still includes the use of adrenaline. That's really interesting. We had a chat with Tom Quinn, who was one of the principal investigators on the Paramedic 2 trial about six months ago. And he gave a similarly sort of nuanced answer in that in medical cardiac arrest, we know that it potentially improves survival to ED. And it's very difficult to prognosticate at the roadside which patients are going to have a favourable neurological outcome or not. And therefore, just getting them as far as ED is probably the best thing that we can do at the roadside. He felt that was why the ERC came down on balance to be in favour of adrenaline remaining in the algorithm. You also don't know, in terms of population statistics, you can say for an overall population of X thousand people, there appeared to be no benefit in favourable neurological outcome. It's quite difficult to translate that to the individual, which I think is what you're getting at. And so you don't know if this patient you're looking after is likely to have a good outcome or not really at that stage. And if they don't get a ROSC, then they've got absolutely no chance of a favourable neurological outcome of discharge because you'll leave them pre-hospital. So I can see the point of view on that. I guess the confounding factor is that we were talking in the last little section about looking at your ECG trace or your PADS trace and looking at the PEA and looking at rate within PEA potentially as some sort of aid to decision making. And I guess if you've squirted a couple of auto jets of adrenaline in, you may well see a falsely high rate, which might alter your decisions. Yes. And of course, what you also might do is increase the myocardial oxygenation, oxygen demand and increase the chance of arrhythmias. So there's all sorts of potential side effects of using adrenaline in these patients. I think the patients who we discussed earlier, this relatively rare group in civilian practice, you expect to have had an exsanguinating traumatic cardiac arrest and are likely to have been allowed up at state in trauma, and the electrical activity shows a narrow complex tachycardia, you know, then adrenaline, even though that would fit within a PEA-type rhythm in terms of the ALS um, guidelines, I think that's the sort of patient that you might want to think about prior to getting to them, about whether you would hold off adrenaline in the first instance and concentrate on filling that patient up as part of a hot protocol, And then later on, when you have a patient who has sort of partially responded, perhaps, or has a slower heart rate, might be the patient that you consider that adrenaline at that time is a good idea. It's useful to get your thoughts because it's such a thorny topic. It's useful. I'd also say that, I mean, in terms of the incidence of traumatic cardiac arrest and the complexities around randomised trials within the pre-hospital space, although we've obviously seen some success in the last five years with Paramedic 2, Airways 2, etc., that we may never know the answer to this question. And certainly with this broad mix of etiologies that make up traumatic cardiac arrest, it's quite likely that there are some etiologies in some situations where adrenaline may improve survival and some where it doesn't. But I think we're pretty unlikely with the incidence of TCA to actually ever know the answer to some of these questions. Just before we move away from adrenaline, the Scottish Ambulance Service up here has started getting paramedics to consider using adrenaline for inotropic support post-ROSC. Now, is there any nuance to that in the traumatic sphere that you would be concerned about? Well, so that's a massive can of worms. And I don't know if you're aware, but we have an American-UK model, I guess, of trauma resuscitation, which leans heavily away from the use of inotropes or vasopressors. And that is in quite comparison uh, to the French model, 
where they like to use vasopressors alongside fluid resuscitation. And it looks like the outcomes are relatively similar. And it's not an area I know too much about. But I think there's increasing recognition that there might be more than one way to skin this cat. And I think looking to the pre-hospital space, we get into a much more nuanced argument or discussion around what's feasible. So it's only feasible for us to carry a certain amount of blood if it's a hem service that carries blood. And even for people who don't carry blood products, it's likely that you're not going to want to give too much crystalloid. And what is too much? No one really knows. And so what are you going to do once you've given a patient a litre, two litres of crystalloids? And I think the smart provider is going to start thinking about the use of vasopressors in that situation, looking towards the French experience, simply because that's what's feasible. Probably better to give that patient a small amount of vasopressor than give them another couple of litres of crystalloids. But again, I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that question right now. And I suspect increasing the lean in that general direction is the fact that certainly as far as your average basics responder goes it's going to be a litre of crystalloid that's been sat in the back of their car in sub-zero temperatures and without the benefit of a warming device to put it through so I guess that might nudge you a little further away from going much beyond the kind of two litres. Yes and I would say and I think I'm okay to say that the guys at DSTL Port and Down are looking at exactly this issue as in they're looking at a model of haemorrhage that includes interventions that are just fluids and fluids with vasopressor. And so it might be that we get some more information to guide our thoughts around this in the not too distant future. Fantastic. Stand by for a phone call to drag you back on here to chat that through as and when it comes out. The next thorny area I'd like to pick your brains on is around futility and cessation of resuscitation. These patients are horribly hard to prognosticate on and for but what are your thoughts around when we can safely make decisions at the roadside that this isn't going well yeah that's a good question so i think one of the things that the hot protocol has given us is an understanding of what interventions we might give and then start to think about futility so i think first up you've got patients in whom you might not want to start recess in the first place and they're pretty well described within jr calc or within the Resource Council guidelines as well, I think. So these are patients who are not in one piece or have a massive open head injury or who show signs of rigor mortis, albeit certainly in your neck of the woods, there'll be issues around hypothermia. And then when we get to patients who have either had a recess attempt started or you think need one, then after we've completed the HOT protocol, so we've made sure that they're getting oxygenated ventilation, They've had some sort of chest decompression, whether that's needle decompression or finger thoracostomy, and they've had filling. And the amount of filling is perhaps up for debate, but I think most people would be pretty happy around the two litre mark for an adult. And then here's the time to start to reassess your patient and to see whether there's been any response to that protocol. And I think at this stage, if the patient's asystolic, then the chance of survival is basically 0%. So there are documented ROSs in the literature from electrical asystole. To my knowledge, I don't think there have been any reported survivors to hospital discharge. There was one patient in Afghanistan who I think was a hemorrhagic arrest who had cardiac stands still observed on an ultrasound and asystole on the cardiac trace. And they had some chest compressions, mixed product resuscitation, but later died on ICU. And I think if we look towards future technologies, which I'm happy to quickly talk about as well, like selective aortic arch perfusion, What we don't know is whether someone who's had an asystole 
secondary to hemorrhagic traumatic cardiac arrest if there's a chance that they'll have a good neurological outcome because the brain is obviously much more fickle or sensitive to periods of hypertension and hypoxia. So I think moving back to our patient, if you've got an asystole after you've done the HOT protocol, then that's pretty clear cut. If after the HOT protocol, you've got a patient who's in a PEA, but you've seen some improvement in their rhythm throughout the protocol, then you might want to just check over your oxygenation, your thoracostomies, and give another litre or so of fluid, watch what happens to the heart rate, watch what happens to the end tidal CO2. And if they're trending positively upwards, then it looks like you might just want to give them more fluid and check everything else, make sure all the external bleeding is stopped, apply a pelvic binder and see if you get a ROSC. And that's a slightly more sort of nuanced or difficult area. I think once you've got to another litre after your two litres and you've not had a return of spontaneous circulation, then that's the time to start discussing with your team about pronouncing the patient life extinct. So I think overall, the important consideration is complete the HOT protocol and then look for trend. And if there is a good response to intervention, but they haven't quite had a ROSC, then the patient should have a bit more filling after that third litre, I guess, for an adult, then that's the time to start discussing stopping resuscitation. Now, I noticed that you've stayed away from differentiating between blunt and penetrating trauma. Is there any nuance around the mechanism of injury in these decisions or or are they sort of pan-patient? No, I think they're pan-patient, really. I mean, I work somewhere where penetrating trauma is almost vanishingly rare. um, And I suspect most of your providers in basic Scotland hopefully also work in, in situations where penetrating trauma is also vanishingly rare. And so it's not something that I have a massive experience of outside of military gunshots, certainly. But I'd apply those same principles and those same ideas across the spectrum of blunt and penetrating, with, of course, all of the caveats that you discussed with Richard Lyon about penetrating injuries to the torso, which may involve a pericardial tamponade, of which you've probably got the highest reported survival overall, I think up to about 20% for patients with a pericardial tamponade who receive a resuscitative thoracotomy in the right setting, which is even higher than I think the 16% survival that we reported from military TCA from lower limb hemorrhage. And so that needs to be taken into consideration. But I think all the caveats that we've just discussed around ceasing resuscitation hold true across penetrating and uh, blunt trauma mechanisms. It's interesting that you caveated there about the right setting. And I think it's something that often gets forgotten when we look at these papers, this academic research in the context of responding within rural Scotland is that we definitely aren't in the right setting. And there's a world of difference between getting a ROSC post-TCA in city centre London, where you've got hems on uh, blood at the roadside, and having it in remote and rural Scotland, where you've got multiple hours of transfer to a, an advanced DGH, but no real trauma centre and potentially no option to fly. I think we focus a lot on the time intervals from when we get to the patients as in after we get to the patient. I think a lot of this in terms of the penetrating trauma, and maybe the blunt as well, has got to do with how long it takes from 999 call to have somebody at scene who can undertake these interventions. Looking across the east of England, in some data we looked at a few years ago, I think I'm right in saying that we arrived to patients, uh, less than 5% of TCA patients within eight minutes of the 999 call as a HEMS team. And so that really brings us on to thinking about how we might improve outcomes from TCA in the future. But I think it also limits us in terms of the 
likelihoods of getting meaningful survivors from traumatic cardiac arrest when you compare it to, let's say, a London model where the response times, I hope, are a lot shorter than those in other parts of the country. Yeah, it's not uncommon for me to have a 20, 25 minute drive to a treble nine, which when you built in all the other FAF factors and the fact that we're not stood kitted, ready to go. Actually, I think it does change the decision-making algorithm in terms of some of these high-risk interventions in the context of, mm. of a patient who's already potentially been on the ground for I'm thinking about, a protracted um, period of time. We don't really have any good sort of whole system data from that. And something to look out for over the next probably couple of years, the Tetris study, I think it's called Tetris, which is recruiting. So I think it's going to be certainly all across England, maybe a bit wider, looking at hospitals and pre-hospital teams, reporting all of their cases of resuscitative thoracotomy over a 12-month period, which will give us a much better idea, I think, of the current state of play of who's doing what and what survival looks like. Now, you mentioned future directions. What are your thoughts in terms of stuff that's on or near the horizon that might potentially... Yeah, so I think what we really need is a better understanding of the epidemiology of traumatic cardiac arrest. So I know we've talked a bit earlier about some of the sort of historical studies and some of the limitations in how we report survival outcomes in terms of only including patients who've arrived at hospital, for example. But in order to really look to the future and and understand this disease process, I think we can discuss it as the four E's, which I've totally stolen from a colleague of mine, Rod McKenzie. And the first E is epidemiology. So what we need are total epidemiological studies of TCA in order to understand what people die from following trauma. And this is probably the elephant in the room. And one of those elephants is something that was mentioned in the previous TCA podcast, which is impact or traumatic brain apnea. So we've got little idea of the prevalence of that condition. The other two E's are engineering and enforcement, uh, taken from the Road Safety Partnership. And we know that a high proportion of TCA occurs on roads. So there's something kind of non-medical about that, or there's something that we might influence. And the fourth E is education. And this is both about education of the public and also education of providers. And I think a really important part of all of this with traumatic cardiac arrest is bystander intervention. So we talked just now about response times to traumatic cardiac arrest. And there's no way that we can rely on EMS or um, helicopter EMS or basic responders to be oxygenating someone who has an impact brain apnea because they just simply won't get there in time. And I believe that was part of the impetus to start a good SAM app. And interventions like that, I think, are really important in increasing survival, both for medical arrest, but also traumatic cardiac arrest. And that's probably the largest non-prevention impact on survival over the next five or 10 years from traumatic arrest. In terms of education, we've also got this idea that TCA isn't futile, albeit the survival is probably not quite as good as that which is reported in the headlines. And we've also got some potential future technologies. So I know you've spoken previously with Paul Rees about Reboa, and it would logically seem that that would be a useful technology, particularly for patients in a hemorrhagic state. So think of a patient who's got a massive pelvic disruption that's led to a hemorrhagic TCA. It would be logical that a balloon occlusion above that uh, would be useful in resuscitating a hemorrhagic TCA. But there's not a lot of data out there at the moment to fully support that and there's all sorts of things in terms of feasibility that are difficult so inserting an arterial line in someone in a hemorrhagic TCA is I think pretty tricky and there are other technologies one of which I looked at for my PhD which is selective aortic arch perfusion which essentially is a reboa catheter 
that allows you to pass oxygenated perfusate, whether that's crystalloids or blood, up through and past the balloon into the arch of the aorta and essentially either restart or support the heart and also perfuse the brain crucially at the same time. And what we don't know with a technology like SAP is whether, I know that we can resuscitate pigs who are in electrical asystole secondary to hemorrhage, but what we don't know is whether it's likely that there'll be a neurological survival in patients who've essentially bled into asystole. And so I guess there are technologies around endovascular resuscitation, which may have an impact, but I don't think they'll be for the masses for some time yet. And I think in summary, I think the largest improvements are likely to be in public engagement of bystander intervention in these patients. It's really interesting, and it chimes with what both Richard and Paul have talked about before. And I guess in terms of the public engagement, some of the campaigns that are going on around trauma and sort of roving terrorist type threat in terms of early hemorrhagic control, I guess, is, is all steps on this yeah, same Yeah, absolutely. Journey. I think the, um, I mean, I guess the uh, patients we think about who are hugely survivable are those with extremity hemorrhage, which is a compressible and very controllable injury. And that's very much the MTFA roving terrorist situation in patients who are, you know, extremely survivable, where some some bystander intervention with an improvised tourniquet might be absolutely life-saving, will hopefully prevent that patient going into an exsanguinating traumatic cardiac arrest. And I guess looking back at, for instance, Manchester and the bombings there a few years back, actually it's something we're still not particularly effective at yes absolutely and of course uh, not just hemorrhage control but if we look back to this condition that we don't really know the incidence of the impact or traumatic brain apnea and i'll pop a link in the notes as well it's a link to a paper by mark wilson et al that really explains impacts very nicely you know simply opening a patient's airway and giving them expired air ventilation or mouth to mouth with or without chest compressions is likely to bridge those sorts of patients through to making a very good recovery Fantastic. No, thanks very much for giving us a great rundown of what's coming down the pipeline and things that I guess that we're already potentially doing but could do better. All of our presenters, we've been asking them to give three top tips. So in terms of traumatic cardiac arrest and some of the directions that the research is going, what would your suggestions yeah, be? Yeah, of course. So I think the first is a reiteration from talk with Richard Lyon, which is to know and practice the HOT algorithm. And that's, that, you know, that's really important. I find a good way to remember the actual components is the mantra of oxygenate, decompress and fill. And this gives you an immediate action drill when under stress arriving at these situations. I think the second thing to say is that we know that TCA isn't futile. However, the way that the data reported makes it seem that survival is similar to that of medical arrest. And I think it's unlikely to be the case. And you should be prepared that almost all of the patients who are truly in TCA pre-hospital are likely to be pronounced life extinct at scene. However, that shouldn't discourage you from aggressively attacking these patients. And my third point, I think, is to form a mental model of when you would and would not perform closed chest compressions and discuss these at meetings and during your training and certainly the time to get this right in your own head is not when you're faced with a TCA. And to be aware that, that uh, this can be a very difficult situation pre-hospital in terms of the human factors and working together in a flash team. That's really interesting and uh, definitely a role for us as Basic Scotland in terms of trying to facilitate some of that simulation and yes, kickstart those conversations happening. 
Thanks so much for sharing a whole host of expertise and touching on a large number of, of bits of academic research and, and your own experience. And it's really useful to get the educational and academic backgrounds to the decision making that we're doing Absolute on the ground. Pleasure. I so hope thank it's you useful. so much for your And expertise. I'll pop some of the links to a few of the open access articles if people want to get a bit of a deeper understanding around these topics. Brilliant. Many thanks indeed. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.